Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 108. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have the fourth degree black belt, James Foster. James is the owner of Foster Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Kent, Washington. He shared his martial arts journey, some of his competition experiences. By the way, James is a three-time black belt master world champion. James is heavily involved with awareness campaigns and nonprofit organizations such as We Defy Foundation, Mission 22, Black Belts for Butterflies, and Jamming BJJ. When I asked him how he prepared himself mentally for competition, his answer inspired me to title this episode, Winning Your Internal Battles. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on the topic, Winning Your Internal Battles. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, James Foster. James is a fourth-degree black belt under Professor Jiva Santana. Over the past 30-plus years of his martial arts journey, James has dedicated over two decades of training solely to the art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He is the proud owner and head instructor of Foster Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Kent, Washington, which is one of the largest facilities dedicated to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instruction in the entire Pacific Northwest. While James' main focus has always been his academy, students, and giving back to the community through charity, he is a three-time IBJJF Black Belt Master World Champion and has remained an active competitor over the years, achieving many accomplishments at the highest level in the sport. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. It was a huge honor for me to have somebody of your caliber and your standing in the jiu-jitsu community reach out to me and, and uh, want to have me on your podcast. You're somebody I've looked up to for a long time, and I follow uh, the BJJ Mental Coach. I was actually a member on there before, so right thank you. It's a very, very much an honor for me to be on today. Thank you. Cool. And we're recording this in July of 2020. I like to mention the date too, why we're going through the madness, just because uh, this is going to be here forever. So maybe someone might be listening in 10 years, 20 years, and also Absolutely. everyone, yeah. we all doing the best we can with what we got, right? The internet does not forget, guys. So remember when you, when you fly off the handle on your little social media posts and your opinions, people aren't going to forget when all this is over. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. So let's start at how martial arts show up in your life and then eventually jujitsu. 
All right. So, you know, I, I've told this story before many times, but for me as a, as a child, I, I had a love of like martial arts movies and things. So I remember like on the weekend watching some martial arts films with my parents and, and just having a great joy and looking forward to, to watching those and just the action and the technique and the moves that were being displayed. So uh, from a, a pretty early age, I was asking my parents, you know, to, to allow me to participate in some kind of martial arts. And they were a little hesitant for a while. But as a kid, I was always a, a, a very big kid. So I was always much bigger, like hit the growth spurt and bigger than all the other kids. And part of that, uh, I think, contributed to me like not being able to control my own body very well. So I had balance problems. I remember my parents said whenever I would be on a bicycle, I would always crash, you know, have trouble with the balance. So eventually they thought, you know, maybe martial arts will help him with the balance and coordination on all these different things. And it was when the, the Karate Kid movie came out, the first, the original Karate Kid. And we saw the Karate Kid movie together and after that, I was begging, I want to do karate, I want to do that, I want to do what I saw in that movie. And they were able to find a, a karate facility um, not too far from where we live. So at the age of 10 years old was when I started in karate. And I, I participated in karate for about uh, almost 10 years, a little over nine years. So I achieved a first degree black belt in that style of karate. And then um, not, not too long before I transitioned out of that was when I discovered the UFC. Nice. So probably what, like 1993, uh, saw Hoist Gracie in the UFC. I was like, what is this guy doing? How is this, how's this smaller guy like dominating these people with these techniques? And actually myself and some of the other um, black belts at the karate school at the time, we would get together on our own at the academy and try, you know, like off of uh, illegal VHS copies of the original UFCs, reverse engineer what we were seeing Hoist do. You know, oh, how did he do this choke? How did he, how did he do that arm lock? And we would try to practice and, and teach ourselves because, as you know, back then there was no books on it, no videos, no no YouTube. Like you were lucky if you had the, 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 what was it? The Craig Kukuk uh, VHS set yeah. was like one of the only big full sets and most of us couldn't afford to get it. Um, so it was a lot of trying to, to reverse engineer, learn on our own. And there came a point where I was an instructor there at the, the karate school and I, I went to the owner because the style of karate that I did was more similar to Jeet Kune Do. So it was not just karate. They, their motto was, if it works, we use it. So they would use things from other styles. We did things from Kung Fu, Taekwondo, karate, Judo. Like, if it works, we use it, right? Well, when it came to Jiu-Jitsu, for whatever reason, with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the instructor, the head guy, he didn't, he wasn't into that. Was he, resistant so, to it. He was very resistant. I think um, intimidated by it because those of us who were practicing on our own and, you know, with very limited resources, when we were doing the stand up karate sparring, 
we would double leg them, arm bar, or rear naked choke. And this is people, you know, these guys we're sparring with are guys who've been a black belt in this karate for 20, 30 years. So I think for their, their ego, you know, some of them were, oh, that's really cool. Can you show me how you did that? And some of them were like, well, if, I, if it was full contact, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that to me. So sometimes we would say, oh, go ahead. If you can, if you can knock me out before I can do it, go ahead. You know, don't, don't hold back. Same thing, double leg, <laughs> rear naked choke or arm bar, right? So I was instructing there because one of the nice things about training there was that in order to be a black belt there, part of that was you had to learn how to teach and be an instructor. So that was something great that I took from training there was I started learning way back then how to teach uh, martial arts and how to be a good instructor. Well, I was teaching there and I said to my uh, sensei at the time, the owner, I said, uh, sensei, I would like to pay on my own to go learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I will bring back here, you know, some of the things and, and teach some of the people because if it works, we use it, right? That's our motto. And I'll never forget, he looked me in the eye and he said, James, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a fad like Kung Fu was in the 70s. He says, that stuff's going to be gone in two or three years. You won't hear anything about it. And he says, if you want to do that, you can, but you're not welcome to come back here. So basically, wow. if you choose, then you have to leave. This was very heartbreaking for me. This is my family. I've been there over nine years, very close with all these people. So when I heard that, it was like somebody, you know, punched me in the stomach. And I, and I didn't know what to think. I was like very confused because on one hand, you're telling me if it works, we use it. And here's something that's proven effective. Why are you not wanting to, to learn this? But out of, you know, respect to him, I did not question him. And how old were you I, back then? <clears throat> probably at that time, I was uh, 17 or 18 years old. Actually, no, eight, I was definitely, that conversation happened just before, before I turned 19. Because that was when I made the decision. I, I, I went home, I thought about it, and I wrote a, a long letter to him. And I, you know, explaining how this, like I was being forced into this choice I didn't want to make. And I'm like leaving my family and I'm leaving a part of myself. But this is what I need to do to continue to grow as a martial artist. And what so, were you living back then in Washington? Yeah, I've been here my whole life. Yep, I've okay. been here in Washington State my whole life. So... Um, funny enough, this, uh, a cat, this school where this martial arts school I was at, the karate school was in Kent, Washington, which is where my academy is located now, just a little further from where that was. But yeah, mm -hmm. I stayed real close to where I, where it all started. Um, but what ended up happening, I, I made the decision and I, and I branched out, uh, shortly after that, I went on a business trip with my father down to Texas, and he was going to a telecommunication school for telephone uh, computer technician training. 
And he had noticed on his previous schooling when he went down there, a school that had a Brazilian jiu-jitsu sign in the, in the window. And he said, oh, my son's interested in that. And he talked to the owner. And so he said, next time when, we go, when I go to Texas, I'll take you with me. And during the week while I'm at the phone training, you can do jiu-jitsu. Nice. So that was with a, a person who at the time was under Carlos Machado down there. And it's a good friend of mine who's a friend and a mentor to this day. His name's Alan Moeller. So he is now under Alliance Jiu-Jitsu. He has been for a long time uh, under Jacare. And that was my first introduction to actual structured Jiu-Jitsu classes. I learned more in that week than I had in like a year of us trying to reverse engineer and, and come up with things on our own, you know. So when we came back, we searched, and surprisingly enough, there was one Brazilian instructor in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school within driving distance of where we were in Washington State, and that was Professor Marcelo Alonso under Carlson Gracie team. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, who's still around here to this day. So that was where, when I quit the karate school, I started my journey in jiu-jitsu under Professor Marcello, and the rest, as they say, is history. I'm still doing it to this day, although under very strange circumstances. Mm, <laughs> From right. home, you can't see my roll-up mats. I've been teaching online classes for my students here from, from my basement and everything, but we're still doing jiu-jitsu. It's just like everything in jiu-jitsu, you have to evolve with the process and adapt and overcome, right? Right on. And when did you get involved to competitions? Especially back then, they didn't have as many. You back know, then was hard. Yeah. yeah, back then was hard. I was actually, I was looking um, uh, a while back, uh, I was looking at your profile on BJJ Heroes, and I remember it said something about that you had competed at the Joe Marrera tournament in California, yeah, the, the California state championship or whatever. Mm -hmm. I actually went to that uh, tournament. I think it was the one before that. I think it was in 97. Uh, I went to that 96 or 97 and uh, competed down there. That was, that was one of my first times competing other than like an in-school tournament. Mm -hmm. um, as far as competition for me, uh, back then, it was hard because I was always the, the big guy. And whatever belt level I was at, I would go to a local competition and there would be nobody in my division. Mm. So I'd wait all day and then have nobody to compete oh, against. So unless somebody decided to move down and be like, oh, I'll give this guy a match. You know, I'll, I'll move up in weight and go against this guy, uh, which happened a couple of times. Um, Actually, a good friend of mine uh, named Ivan Salivary, who, who runs an yeah, MMA school. Fought in UFC. Yeah, yeah, fought in the UFC. He runs Great jiu-jitsu uh, guy, too. Yeah, yeah, good jiu-jitsu. We were all white belts together at Marcelo Alonso's. So um, I remember there was a tournament after uh, Marcelo had gone back to Brazil and his school uh, closed, and I was with a different instructor, but there was a local tournament. And I remember Ivan, he, he moved up in weight so I could have a match without, I always remember as being really neat of him to do because he knew I would always not have matches when I would go to these competitions, you know. So I only competed a few times at uh, white belt and uh, once at blue belt. 
just because of those circumstances. Yeah. And then my next competing wasn't until Brown Belt. And that was a oh. super fight uh, against Jeff Munson, a no-gi match, right, right when I had just got my Brown Belt. And then after that, it wasn't until Black Belt. Uh, I got my Black Belt in 2005. Uh, I was going to compete that year, but I actually got injured getting ready for PANS that year in 2005. And so my first year competing at Black Belt was the 2006 PANS. And most of my competition, the mass majority has been competing at black belt at the highest level. Comprito, Kavaka, jumping in with all these guys who've been doing it for years. Me as a new uh, black belt learning on the job. And I got to give a shout out to Comprito because I know he would appreciate that I went crazy and, and did my hair because of the quarantine. <laughs> Did you compete in karate? No, no. The, the, for whatever reason, they did not uh, like competitions. They did not want okay. to do even like the, the karate competitions that were around. So I never had the opportunity to do that. It was a very uh, pull your punches kind of style, light yeah. contact. That's why I was saying like when, when they were like, oh, if I could do full contact, you wouldn't stand a chance. You, Okay, do full contact and we'll see. Same result, right? So no, I didn't get a chance in, in uh, karate to to uh, compete. So all of my competition was with jujitsu. And how was for you mentally speaking, you know, going against guys that have been around world champions? How I was, was already, uh, you know, in some, in some uh, aspects, I was already defeated mentally. Mm-hmm. And there were times when I would get myself pretty dialed in. I'll say this, the first two years I competed at, at PANS, 2006-2007, I did take bronze, but I wasn't able to consistently put in a good performance. And that was all due to the, what's in here. It wasn't you. because I lacked the skills, but it was because I would do well in one or two matches and then my brain would crumble you see comprito standing across from you you see holes gracie jr is your next match oh man what am i going to do with this guy and defeating yourself before you even start it was just a it, i knew nothing back then about the mental side mm -hmm. and i started to you know, it wasn't until 2013 uh, where everything really clicked for me. I remember I was sitting in my hotel room the night before um, 2013 Master Worlds and was having the racing heart, the anxiety, all the normal things, the doubt, all the stuff that I had faced before. I said to myself, I don't really like how this feels. This is horrible. Like, hmm. I don't feel this way before I roll at the academy. Why am I thinking about this differently than how I do with training at the academy? If I truly want to perform at my best, I want to roll like I do at the academy. Well, I'm already falling apart anyway, so why don't I do an experiment tomorrow? Mm -hmm. So my experiment was I'm going to go. I'm going to do the same warm-up I do at, before I roll at the school. 
I don't listen to angry music before I roll at the academy. So instead of copying and doing that, like I would always do before, I didn't do that. I let I listened to the sound. I was present in the in the environment, and uh, it turned out very well. I, I ended up taking silver that year. I almost I almost pulled it out in the final against Coraletta, um, but. It was it was a very close match and and he just edged me out. But that was like my big breakthrough moment. I took silver that year, and build on that momentum. And honestly, that was the point because I kind of stumbled upon some of the things on my own. That was when I really started to study the mental training, listening to a lot of books, studying, applying, and doing all these things, and just continued to build on it. And that's what led to eventually, you know, 2015, uh, Master World Champion, 2018, 2019. So this is the, the thing I try to get across to my students that it's in here. This, yes, is, this is a way bigger portion. This is way easier than the physical training, but nobody wants to do the mental training. And that's the hard part to get across. Like you guys want to get in and grind and kill yourself, train three times a day, do all of this, but you can't take 20 minutes a day to do a little mental study and start applying these things. The ones who are really serious, they start to realize, oh man, maybe there's a reason Michael Jordan talked about his mental coach and Kobe Bryant and, and name any top level elite athlete and they will speak about their mental training there's a reason for that that's because it's it's the, the key absolutely it's the most out in the open secret there is if you want to perform great at, at the highest level yeah i like to say that everyone me you everyone who's listening everyone's fighting an internal battle that no one knows about it absolutely right. it doesn't matter uh, on a mat off the mat everyone is fighting an internal battle and if you want to succeed in the external battle whatever that means to you if it's on and off the mats you need to get the best of it and uh, of course i'd love to tell you that i win my internal battles every day i'd love to tell you that but it's not how yeah. it goes, doesn't you know? work right and yeah. especially um you know to be completely honest like Right now, it's the most I've been tested in a yeah, long time I during hear this. You, man. I never thought in a million years if you told me, James, your, your academy is going to be closed like probably for half a year because of a global pandemic. I'd be like, man, you're crazy. That's, we're too smart here, man. We're not going to, we're going to listen to the, the data. We're going to look at how everybody else has defeated a pandemic and we'll just do that. And we'll be over it in a month or two. That's what I would have told you. But for whatever reason, been a lot of pushback on that, ignoring history, ignoring scientific data and all these things. Like my rule is you don't get to complain about it dragging on if you're not willing to look at the history, apply what we learned from history to solve the problem. And then we can move on. You don't get to complain. I hear you. I think that's a good rule. How do you get now in the stage, of course, right now, um, not competing, but uh, the latest competitions that you had, what's some of the key things that you work on your mental to prepare you for, for the tournament? 
for me, it is the, the biggest one and it's the most exhausting one. Uh, I always tell my students, I'm always way more tired mentally than I am physically. By the time that the tournament comes around, I'm like, I'm relieved because all the hard physical training has been done, but also the mental part, you have to stay on top of yourself and your thoughts every single second of every single day. It is exhausting. You let one bad thought settle in and not take the time to address it and reverse it in your mind, you're already on your way to losing. So for me, it's that 24 seven, if a, if a negative one comes in, block it out, change it, reverse it. If I see myself like uh, having something bad happen in a match, okay, I reverse it. I, I visualize me no matter what bad situation I'm in, I come back and I still win, you know, stuff like that. That's the biggest one is just being relentless in staying on top of fighting against your own mind the battle against yourself and your own mind, that's one you have to win every second of every day. And that's difficult. And most people are too lazy to do that and they let it wear them down. And by the time they get to the tournament, it's way easier to just let those things circle in your brain. Yeah, you and sometimes, sometimes could it be laziness, sometimes could it be lack of awareness? Because at some point I didn't know better. You know Correct. Like if you don't have the training and the knowledge, then it's not, it's not laziness. It's just that you don't understand yeah. the importance of it. So yeah, definitely agree with that. It's not like if you don't have the tools, you can't be expected to, to apply it, you yeah. know? And also, you know, for most people, and, and I think we're, we're seeing this right now, if something doesn't directly affect you, maybe you question the reality of it. Right. So we're seeing this with this virus. If somebody doesn't know somebody who got it or somebody for, who died from it, they think it's not real or it's a conspiracy. I personally have several students now who have had parents and friends die from the virus. So I know it's very much real. Hmm. I have several doctors, scientists, a coroner, somebody who works in a morgue who, work, who trains with me and been training for a long time. They've all verified it is very real. So for me, I know this is real. It's directly affect me, even if it's within, you know, a few degrees of separation. It's the same thing when it comes to the, the mental tools. If you can be told it, but until you experience it and you make it work for you and you apply it, then the light bulb goes off. And it's like, oh, what coach has been telling me the past five years, it actually works. Mm -hmm. We see that with our students and certain techniques too. Oh, you, you've been telling them do, do this grip and this and like, it's really good because of this, this and this. Okay, coach. And then maybe they weren't ready to receive that information and apply it. Then a few years from, from then, coach, I did this one grip and it worked and I got to the guy's back. Oh, you mean like I told you five years ago? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember you telling me that. But they had to discover it on their own. Absolutely. You know, what they say is that your uh, perception is your reality, right? So until they're able to see it on their own and, and apply it on their own, it's hard for people to believe it. For sure. Now, let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So 
when was the moment that you said, you know what, I'm going to do this here for a living and I want to have my own business. So how was it? was an organic process that when you noticed it was just ready? Happening? It was, it was, it was not planned. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, what's the word for it? Serendipitous. It was mm -hmm. like serendipity. Uh, some people call it karma or like something is, it worked out the way it was supposed to. Right. Uh, it was very strange. So you remember the story I told you about the owner of the karate school making me choose to quit and, and do pursue jujitsu. Well, there came a time, well, the whole time doing jujitsu here in Washington state, it was very much hit and miss. In other words, um, somebody would have a school for a year or two. There would be some kind of problem falling out between the instructor and the owner over probably most times over money or something. And then the school would shut down. Or in the example of uh, the first school I trained at with Marcelo Alonso, it was because his lawyer had done his visa paperwork wrong. Mm. And once it was discovered that something was wrong in the paperwork, he had to go back to Brazil. So we literally, I'd been training there over a year at the time, literally showed up for class one night. All the lights were out. All the signs Man. were down or like nothing, no warning, no, not. And we were like, what's going And then find out, oh man, that he got sucks. sent back to Brazil. It was horrible, right? Felt so bad for him. Uh, thankfully, he was able to get everything in order and come back. And he's had a uh, couple schools here for a very long time since. But um, so at that time, you know, another owner would come in, bring another instructor from Brazil for a period of time, like Joe Marrero was sending some people. So we'd have random instructors that he would send over. Um, but it was like that process, have a school to train consistent for a year or two, and then basically start over, start over, start over. So that happened like three times. And then it came a time where the school I was training at, I was driving an uh, hour and a half each direction to train, right? So three hours round trip, training like four or five days a week because that was the only place to train and I was dedicated to training. Well, they came to me one day and I was a purple belt at the time, but I was, I, I was at blue belt for like five years because of the, you know, schools. Every time you would start with a new instructor, they want you to prove you meet their standard and all of that. So achieve my purple belt under uh, a gentleman, uh, Mama Zeno. And he, he promoted me finally to my purple, had me teaching a lot of classes at the time, was doing that three hour round trip. And then they came to me one day, said, James, um, we're moving the academy farther north. So it was literally going to be like two and a half hours each way, like a way longer. And I said, guys, I, I literally, it's killing me to do three hours round trip. I'm a, I'm a young man with two jobs. Like I, I can't follow you guys if you, and I said, Oh, you know, the owner told me, well, we figured we'd lose some people because of that and all that. So Again, heartbroken because I had consistent training and it's gone again. Well, as the universe works, around that same time, shortly after that, when everything was up in the air, I did not know what I was going to do. I get a phone call and it's a gentleman who was also a black belt training at the karate school back when I trained there. And he says, hey, James, um, 
I'm the new owner of the karate school. I, I, I own the karate school now. And he says, I, uh, I've got some guys that are getting into MMA. And this is when MMA is very new still and everything and smaller local events on Indian reservations and things. And he says, yeah, they do great if it stays standing, but if they get put on the ground, they're done. They get, if somebody has grappling jujitsu experience, they get choked out, arm barred. He says, can you, um, can you come back here and, and maybe a couple times a week, help these guys and, and show them some jujitsu? I said, sure, I'll come, you know, I'll give back to my old, uh, my old roots and, and come help those guys. So it was just, you know, out of, out of kindness and for free, no charge or anything. I would go there a couple days a week and I would teach them some jujitsu. Well, that started to build, right? And then more people were hearing about it. People were enjoying the class I was doing. And I said, how much does it cost to do this? I want to do this. I said, oh, Thirty dollars. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. like thirty dollars. I made up a number, you know, thirty dollars a month or whatever. So I started to build a little student base. Then, as the karate school grew, they got into a bigger location, and they gave me like one whole side of their location that I could put mats in and teach jujitsu out of. So, and they were just taking a very small percentage of of what I was making each month. So I'm, I'm really indebted to them because they allowed me my start of having a very low overhead and being able to build my student base. So that took place from about uh, 2003, 2004. And you still until, have, uh, uh, you're still working outside too, right? Still had a different Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Still working like crazy. Um, and during that time was when my wife and I were first dating. And so it was literally like work all day. I would go, I would wait in the parking lot of the college where she went to college. Then at night when she got out of class, go hang out with her till like three, four in the morning, sleep an hour or two, get up, go open at my one job, work there for four hours, drive an hour, work at my other job. And all this while doing all this other stuff, right? So when people tell me they, they, the academy is too far away because it's 10 minutes from their house or something, <laughs> I'm like, man, I hear don't you. know how good you guys have it because you have jujitsu on every corner now. <laughs> so much easier for people to learn, right? But um, so this is during, during all of this, right? So... I was still still working and everything just I think I was doing it like three days a week or something where I was teaching out of this uh, bigger spot and I had two 20 by 20 wrestling mats that I drove up to Canada and purchased brought back and so I was there and that allowed me to get to the point where I had enough of a student base that I said okay now I have a little bit of insurance, right? Now, if I go and I open my own spot, at least I already have students. I don't have to worry about building the student base. So in 2007 was when I opened my my own location in a very small, very, very small spot where I still just had, you know, the two wrestling mats, 
couple changing room, you know, stalls and a couple restrooms and an office and that was it. And we were there, we outgrew it within the first year. I was really surprised and both excited and scared because I did a three year lease. And then it's like, then you outgrow it in the first year. Like, what am I going to do? Good problem to have. So added a lot more classes, spread things out more, made it the three years. And then 2010 is when I got into the location way bigger, the one that I'm still in to this day. And it just, it just kept building, kept building and, and uh, snowballed as they say. So what year did you go all in when you left your job? Just when I to, left my just, job, just to focus was, on that. That was that was shortly before I went to to open my own spot. Oh, nice. Yeah, I I think it was maybe six months to a year before I opened my new spot was when I was when I took the full plunge and was like, okay, if I really want to do this, I need to put all my energy to this. And then that, of course, when you do that, even though it's a scary leap to take, you realize, oh, man, I can do this so much better now that all my focus is here. So it's scary because the the expression here is you're putting all your eggs in one basket, right? But it's really what you need to do if you fully want to dedicate yourself to something and uh, you want it to be your livelihood. The best advice... I've ever been given because I, I, I remember that was one of the questions in the, that you sent me that, that you usually ask in the podcast. Best advice I've ever been given was my dad always hammered into me. He said, don't get in a hurry just to have a job. Try to always pick things that you enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Like try to get a don't get a job just because you need to pay the bills because once you're in it, then you're stuck in that cycle. You won't be able to get out. Right. So I always chose jobs. It was something I enjoyed. And my first job was working as a comic book shop at a comic book shop as a 16 year old. Right. I loved comic books. I love drawing. I love artwork. So I did that for a couple of years. I was always into web design, graphic design and stuff like that. So I worked and I ran a multimedia center at a college. I did that type of stuff. So I've always chosen things that I enjoyed. And then of course, jujitsu has always been my greatest love. So then to be able to transition into that and make that my livelihood has just been the biggest blessing that I ever could have dreamed of. Beautiful, man. And now what was some of the biggest struggles that have been through as a business owner that you didn't know you look back and and there was a huge lesson for sure and of course the struggles they don't they don't end you know it's just you just get you know yes. different different struggles but the biggest one is right now <laughs> yeah no kidding the biggest I, one is right now yeah. but the biggest one in the past was when we had that big um there was like a housing market crash and everything and a lot of people had gotten stuck in adjustable rate mortgages and so then all of a sudden when the rates changed, their house payment jumped by like over a thousand dollars for the next and they couldn't afford it. Everybody's losing their homes and things started losing a lot of students then. And I didn't understand back then that yes, jujitsu is this wonderful thing and, and we get to do what we love and, and train every day and teach people. 
but you also have to understand how business runs. You have to understand a little bit about business and you have to understand that there's certain choices you can make in how you run your business that can set you up to be unprepared for disaster type situations like that. Unfortunately, we're seeing that a lot right now because a lot of people didn't have things set up in a way where they could have their academy be shut down for several months and be okay. Um, so little things like understanding the importance of having a savings. A lot of people with no savings. Uh, a lot of people not understanding the benefit of doing uh, some sort of term-based agreements with your students so that you ensure you're going to have income over a certain period of time. Back then, all I did was open-ended, right? So open-ended agreements. So literally, everybody could have canceled at once. Mm -hmm. And when we had that, that crash, that's, that's kind of what happens. Like 10, 15 people quit during a week, and you're looking at how am I going to pay the rent next month? this type of thing. Now that's not to say that you don't work with people who really need the help, mm -hmm. but to be fully committed and put all our energy into others, it's nice to know when they're fully committed and they're putting their energy back into us. And those things that we, we have to do as far as understanding how a business operates and how to have security over time that I didn't know back then. And that nearly, nearly shut my school down. The other thing was I didn't, I, I didn't uh, charge enough back then. Okay. Remember I told you when I started, it was like 30 bucks. I think I moved it up to like 35. <laughs> and I was a little, man, maybe like 70. And I was so much lower than everybody else. It's like the car analogy. You've probably heard this. If I show you two of the same brand new Ferrari, same model, everything is the same about them, same engine, everything. One of them has a sticker that says, this one's 250,000. The other one has a sticker that says it's 15,000. Mm -hmm. What do you automatically think about the 15,000? Yeah, and there must be some, that yeah. probably, if I open the, the trunk, there's probably no engine in there, right? So that's the thing. It's the perceived value. And a lot of people uh, do not place their pricing in line with something close to the value that they offer. And I always say, set it to something you're comfortable with. I believe that for the value of what we do at my academy, my prices are actually cheap mm -hmm. because there's so much value in, in jujitsu and the life principles and things that, that are imparted. Jiu-Jitsu saves people's lives. We know this. It's been proven time and time again. Through the, the We Defy Foundation, I work with uh, soldiers with PTSD, and, and I've seen just how even a couple of months of Jiu-Jitsu have, I've literally received letters that I was planning, you know, the person is telling me I was planning to commit suicide the day before I came to your school and through training here, now I no longer have those feelings. I have a purpose for the soldiers. A lot of times they say they never, when they come back from war, they don't feel like they actually came home. 
they feel like they left themselves back there. Mm-hmm. And one gentleman told me in one of those letters that through the training and through the family at the academy, I had made him feel like he came home. Now, if that doesn't like make you tear up, I know I was like sobbing mm-hmm. because it shows us, you know, we, we, sometimes I think we underestimate how powerful what we do is mm-hmm. and our words, especially as leaders and, and instructors, we have to be ca- very careful with the words that we use because people take those to heart. I have a student who uh, wrote a really good book. It's called Flowing with the Go, A Jiu-Jitsu Journey of the Soul. And it's about how jiu-jitsu saved her after her daughter unexpectedly passed away. And in that book that she had been writing during her time training with me, there were things that I looked at and she literally remembered everything I said to her, every piece of advice, every little thing, a life lesson maybe I imparted, just, just speaking from my heart during the class, not even thinking about it, not trying to, to change anything. But then I'm seeing it in a book and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do remember saying that, but I didn't, I didn't realize the impact it could have on somebody. So that gave me an even uh, deeper understanding and appreciation of the weight of our words in the position of leadership that we're in. This is why it, it really saddens me because jujitsu should be above a lot of things. We know how wonderful jujitsu is and the majority of people in jujitsu are wonderful people because there's a lot of filters in place and there's a lot of things that you can take from jujitsu to improve yourself as, as a person. But unfortunately during this, this pandemic, you know, some people are letting things slip and letting a little darker side of themselves um, go public facing. And like I said earlier, like people aren't going to forget that after this is over. And it's, it's sad to see people damaging their, their reputation and kind of being reckless. But at the same time, like a student will send me coach, you see what this other guy said, this is horrible. And I say, well, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but you know, this is a good lesson in people showing you what they truly feel and they truly believe because a lot of times in the jujitsu community, you know, this just because somebody sees somebody wearing a black belt, they automatically assume it's a good person. We're all human. We're all people. We all have flaws None of us are godlike. None of us can levitate and, and, you know, control things with our mind or anything. Like, we're just people. We make mistakes. We can have crazy ideas and, and do things. But going back to what I said, we just have to be more mindful with what we share and the impact it can have, both positively and negatively, on the people who look up to us and the people within our sphere of influence. Absolutely. I want, before I want to, I want to talk more about your charity work before we uh, jump in, before we jump into this, uh, when you mentioned about the the moment in your business that things got, got rough and you're like, man, you know, the, the crisis and stuff. So eventually things start to get better. Now, my question is, did you have mentors? Did you go look for information? Did you read books? I mean, how was it? I, 
I always have had a consistent mentor in my friend Alan Moeller that I mentioned earlier. From the time when I very first went down and did that class with him, we've been in contact to this very day. He's one of my dearest friends and one of the biggest mentors I have in my life. So whenever I've had a struggle like that, I've looked to him. I said, coach, what would you do if this happened? Or how are you dealing with this situation if you're experiencing it? Everything he's had me do, every advice he's ever given me has been the right path. So I think it's incredibly, incredibly important to have mentor figures like that, that you can look to. And if you don't have one personally, then you start looking because we're in the information age. We can find all these different resources on how to deal with these struggles. And there's another gentleman I, I became friends with back then too, a gentleman named Luca Hosovar. He runs a fitness gym called Vigor Ground Fitness, a very, uh, a very successful business uh, in the fitness industry. He speaks all over the world and uh, he owns the Vigor Life Building in Renton, Washington, which is a huge fitness facility. And I remember him telling me like four years ago or like, you know, three or four years prior, like he was going to do that. James, like in three years, I'm going to own a building in downtown Renton. I'm going to improve the area through what we do at my business and help people and this. And then you know what happened three years later? He has the building. <laughs> he got the great business. He's helping people. He's improving the community. So mentors like that, of that caliber, very invaluable in helping guide you through tough times in, in tough situations. Nice. Now let's talk about your work with the charity uh, organizations. So yeah, tell me more about it. So there's three uh, major ones that I'm involved with that I'm incredibly passionate about. One I briefly mentioned is the We Defy Foundation. We Defy Foundation, what they do, they will have uh, uh, veterans with PTSD and all these different issues after they get out of the service and they can apply to the Weedify Foundation. And what the Weedify Foundation does is they will then place them and pay for a year of training for them to go to an affiliated Weedify Jiu-Jitsu Academy. So we were one of, uh, amongst the first when the Weedify Foundation started to be affiliated with them and start having them place veterans with us and see the positive impact that that, that that has on their lives. Like I was speaking on with those letters mm -hmm. and things. Um, many of those people still train to this day. Um, the other one is very similar in, in relation. It's Mission 22, which people have probably heard of the 22 push-up challenge and, and all of that to raise awareness. Um, what they do is they raise awareness for the veteran suicide epidemic, like the issue with veteran suicide and uh, providing resources and things and, and raising funds to go towards helping people who deal with those issues. And lastly, but not least, is Black Belt for Butterflies. My good friend in Connecticut uh, runs that organization and they raise, uh, they raise funds for autism awareness. 
and helping you know people and children with autism and the the charity that they work with often is called uh i believe it's uh dylan's wings of change and it's uh a child who died in the, in the shooting over there in connecticut who was a autistic child when that school shooting happened so the charity's in his name and so a lot of their proceeds go to that and that organization provides funding for schools to provide like better learning equipment and things that that's more useful for autistic children but they do uh, seminars all over and a lot of times they'll use the proceeds to benefit a local autism charity depending on where the seminar nice. is and everything so those are the three that I, I hold very near and dear to my heart and uh, do a lot of work whenever I can donate my time to teaching at a seminar uh, or raise awareness, help raise money for them. That's what I like to do. Yeah, I'd love to talk one day more about even not just interviewing, but I'm saying just having a conversation yes. about Absolutely. it. Uh, Ten years ago, I co-founded this organization. We rebranded to it's called Jujutsu Tribe. So with okay. we we support social projects that offer jujitsu in. A lot of them in Brazil, in the U.S., you don't have as many, but the ones that they have, we support them. Sometimes we get in uh, connections to one of the organizations. There's a beautiful one in Tucson called Higher Ground uh, for kids in some of the impoverished areas, and they do an incredible job. And That's awesome. I'd like to get some more information yeah. on those as well when we, when we chat after this. Yeah, because um, the great thing is with the, the interviews is that it can make a lot of connections, like the inverted gear. Uh, through interviewing them, I didn't know that he works with charities too, and then I got them in, in contact, and they donated 50 brand-new geese. To the, that's awesome to the program you know so uh, there's the there's the the other one it's more internal here at my academy um but it is it is online as well it's called jamming bjj like jamming like basketball mm. um it's it's my student who i mentioned that wrote the book uh elena stole and that uh people donate uniforms that she then takes to brazil and donates to people there in the in the projects and, and to help you know provide them with uniforms so they can do jujitsu and and have a more uh, positive outlet in their lives over there in in the really bad areas. So that's a another huge one that's that's really close to my heart as well. And she's she's an amazing lady. She she gets she has a whole storage uh, unit full of geese right now. Like wow. it fills up so quick with people donating geese and. It's literally she she hand delivers them. So she's gone many times to Brazil now and, uh, you know, takes many suitcases full of geese, as many as she can personally carry because she wants to make sure that it actually gets there instead of mailing it and, and risking a chance that it doesn't get there. And so she does this all the time and just uh, such a special woman that does this uh, out of the kindness of her heart to give back to jujitsu. Yeah. And it's very expensive to send uh, yes. in, in Brazil they have all kinds of like nonsense, you know, to even pick up you know the for them to get the geese so i've done yeah that that's what she was saying it's she brutal yeah that's what she was saying she just doesn't want to risk that it doesn't get where it's supposed to go you know yeah and one of the things uh 
why I started the podcast too. I wanted to, it was a way for me to get the word out of the organization too. And our mission currently is basically, because we used to help in a lot of different ways, getting geese and buy new mats and, you know, different stuff. Right. And then we decided to narrow down to work with less organizations. But what we do, we basically do our best to uh, revamp the, the place and then give a salary to the place to maintain the place. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. So we're able to, um, we started this new format about two years ago and man, I really could have an opportunity to go to the places personally in Brazil nice, too. Nice. So I was going to Brazil every six to eight months for that, but now with the pandemic kind of, yeah, you know, this is the hard thing. I mean, <laughs> last time, last time Elena went there, she, uh, use the the funding to um, the to help them build a library there. Nice. So she got to go last time and and see the opening of the library there and everything. And she also illustrated a children's book, and uh, who's about a jujitsu practitioner that she met over this time. He actually has no arms, um, and uh, how he overcame his obstacles in life and everything. So she illustrated a children's book about him. So when the library, uh, it's called Frango and Chicken. So mm -hmm. it's about him because his nickname is Frango and then his pet chicken in the, in the little kid's story. So it's a cute story about positivity and being able to do things even though maybe you have a, a different uh, limitation that other people don't have. Uh, but she was able to present that book there at the library when they did the opening on her last visit to Brazil, which was incredibly special for her. Nice. I would love to get in contact with her too. Yes, I will definitely, I, I will definitely send you her info. Yeah. I would love to talk more because uh, any, any chance we can to partner up with organizations, uh, it's always, a, uh, it's always valuable. And the idea is to keep promoting each other, promoting each other's programs. So it's awesome. Yeah. My idea, you know, my, when people ask me why I do this, why I do jujitsu, it's not just because I, I love jujitsu, which I do. I love jujitsu. I love the techniques. I love training. Um, I enjoy competing and all this, but for me, I believe that, that I was put here to help people through jujitsu and help improve their lives through my teachings in jujitsu and try to help them make the connections between the principles we, we maintain in the academy and how we translate those into our everyday life to help people improve their lives and, and hopefully as a result, you know, try to make the world a better place. I think it should be mandatory for all politicians and everybody to do jujitsu. No kidding. So one thing jujitsu does is it humbles you. Yep can't the maths don't lie right mm -hmm. so you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about yourself and how you handle those lessons that you learn during jujitsu yeah you know i was uh i was talking with someone yesterday um about jujitsu and uh and of course when people start training they they look for okay self-defense you know they oh, yeah, i want to learn how to defend myself i want to get in shape and i always mention uh, to them like you know maybe it won't make a lot of sense right now but you see like the biggest gains that you will get will be your mental and the emotional aspect absolutely um, and i t and i tell them i would not be able to have this conversation with you in my 20s you know what i'm saying and especially oh. in my 20s i was like 
winning champion gold yes. medal. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's funny how the perspective yeah. changes over time, but that's how it should be when you're provided with information and you and you see things actually factually applied and and proven to work it should be our innate in our in our innate nature to want to evolve and adapt and improve based on those lessons that we learn Hmm. and i think that's something we can take away in this this pandemic because we look back to the spanish flu man that they were doing things and everything and trying to stop it but that lasted two years, guys. Like, stay consistent. Listen to what black belts in their field are telling you. Mm-hmm. Like, find the data on your own. If you don't believe something, go research data on your own. This is the thing. This is the process. It's like if we we're trying to learn a technique, we wouldn't necessarily look for a white belt to learn it from. We're going to look to the black belt to try to learn it. It's also if you see an effective way of doing a technique, that's the way you want to do it. Why are you going to do it this other way that's been proven not to work? These are all jujitsu principles we can apply to what we're dealing with right now if we choose to do that. I would like to see more people taking a jujitsu approach into dealing with the struggles that we're going through in the world right now. Yeah, like uh, one of the one of the thing is that I love about the mental aspect is the problem solving uh, mental aspect Absolutely. of jiu-jitsu. And I always say like, hey, if you're in, if you're on the ground, someone on the street, someone's on the top of you and they have bad intentions and they do not want to get out of there, you got a problem. You Absolutely. I mean? And you got to figure out how the hell I'm going to get out of here. Exactly. Yeah, it's self-preservation, right? Like protecting ourselves and others is what people claim to be about with jujitsu self-defense and having the ability to to protect others these are like two big principles that everybody talks about in jujitsu now we need to look and see are people applying those to life because mm-hmm. i see a lot of people just shrugging off like oh only 150,000 people have died or whatever you know they throw around these numbers like it's no big deal like we're supposed to be about protecting others doing our part and helping and uh, it's just, we got to practice what we preach. What we preach in jujitsu needs to translate to life. If we're great people on the mat, but then we're the completely opposite when we're outside of the academy, that takes away from jujitsu as a whole. Mm-hmm. I personally don't want to give jujitsu a, a bad name. Like I could illegally, uh, I, technically I could legally open my academy right now. But there was a lot of people during the time when it wasn't okay opening all over the world, right? Imagine if one big outbreak was traced to there and a lot of people got sick. That makes jujitsu as a whole look bad. I would rather take a little bit of uh, time and take a step back and not do that. But that's just my own personal idea because I'm here to help people. I'm here to keep people safe, keep my students safe. For me, if one of my students caught it, even if they were fine because they're a healthy person with a great immune system, but they give it to a friend who gives it to a person who isn't fine and they end up dying, I would feel horrible if that got traced back to my academy, right? So everybody has to make the decisions that are right for them. 
with their their moral compass and in how they you know want to be remembered when all of this is over yes sir now let me ask you this um if you could give a piece of advice to the younger james when you open up your school not that you want anything different in your journey because everything is part of the journey but what would you tell him after going all these years you know something that would probably help at that you know in the beginning mm, there's so many but the main thing charge is, more is, no 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 <laughs> no that didn't you know that didn't come till way later like in the beginning it was more uh well not just charge more but don't undervalue the, yeah, the worth yeah, yeah. Of, of yourself Absolutely. and what you're imparting to others right uh, so a lot of people that undervalue what they do but um just to stay a uh, consistent and don't be afraid to make mistakes just mm -hmm. learn from those mistakes adjust and move forward you know make the adjustments based on what you learned in the past apply them to the present move forward and keep staying consistent that's the biggest thing yeah i had a uh there's a book called fail fast fail often yeah that's a good one yeah it's just that's like if you one. if you have to mess up just mess it up let's go let's get it going absolutely yeah. absolutely and and uh there's a book recommendation I have. It's it's called The Compound Effect. Yes, sir. The com by Darren Hardy. You've probably heard of it. But that's just mm -hmm. showing how, and that one talks more like financial stuff, but it's how little things done consistently over time build into great things, which is a thing you can apply to any aspect of your life. Yeah, I think, is that the same one from The Slight Edge? Is it from the same I think it might no? be. I think it might be. Yeah, because I because uh, they talk about this the the uh, the slight edge. I think they talk about the same the compound effect. You know. Yeah. You know about that. Um, so for all the listeners who we're getting close to the end of the interview, so stick around for my final thoughts. Usually at the end, I just reflect and then I put in my final thoughts for like five minutes or ten. It, nice. it depends. In and always everything that I do here always with the intention of inspiring impact and improving people's lives in some way so hopefully the interview has been helping with that so it's always the intention to be able to have to touch one person you know our conversation here it's really you know worth it that impacted one person absolutely you know what I mean? if, it, if it if it helps one person we did our job absolutely and that one person can in turn help up one person and on and on and on it's the it's like the what they say about the butterfly flapping its wings on the other side of the world and creating ripples on the water that continue and just again back to our compound effect right yeah yes sir and so i know that is a tough moment but what are you currently excited about what you got going on man um i'm excited to get back to running my academy like normal but i think that's gonna be a while uh but i'm gonna continue to do my online classes and things i have a lot of things in the work with that um i'm actually prior to this i was just getting ready to film an instructional series with bjj fanatics mm -hmm. but had to be put on hold but i'm going to be filming a lot of stuff a lot more content that i'm just giving out for free online to 
provide people with more training resources um, during this time where a lot of people are, are stuck at home and their academy shut down. Um, the other thing that's exciting for me, I mentioned earlier, like the comic books and that I like to do art and things. If people look at my Instagram and see sometimes I post artwork that I do, I'm actually working on a, a independent comic book project with a friend of mine who's a really good writer. So I've been drawing that during this time since I've had a little extra time um, not being at the academy so much has allowed me to focus a little more on my drawing and, and doing that. So that's what I'm excited about right now. Right on. James, thank you so much for the interview, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It was an honor to be here. Like I said, you're somebody I look up to. You're a legend in our sport. So thanks so much for having me today. Cool. All right, guys, take care and stick around for my final thoughts. Woos. Woos. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with fourth degree black belt James Foster. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, James is the owner of Foster Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Kent, Washington. He shared his martial arts journey, some of his competition experiences. By the way, James is a three-time black belt master world champion. James is heavily involved with awareness campaigns and nonprofit organizations such as We Defy Foundation, Mission 22, Black Belts for Butterflies, and Jamming BJJ. When I asked him how he prepared himself mentally for competitions, his answer inspired me to title this episode, Winning Your Internal Battles. James said, the battle against yourself is the battle that you have to win every second of every day, and these battles are exhausting. During the interview, I mentioned that everyone, including you, regardless if you are a jiu-jitsu competitor or not, is fighting internal battles that no one knows about it. To be successful in your external battles, on and off the mats, you have to win your internal conflict. Is it easy? Absolutely not, especially now during this pandemic when everyone is being tested to its limits. As James mentioned, self-awareness is key. The same way you need to be aware of the negative thoughts in your head when you're preparing yourself mentally for a competition, a type of external battle, you need to be aware of your internal dialogue during your daily life challenges. Self-awareness is the main pillar of emotional intelligence. Just awareness is not enough. It must be followed by the second pillar, self-regulation, the ability to manage your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. If you're struggling with self-regulation, seek help. That includes help from family, friends, and or professional support. I'd love to tell you that I win all my daily internal battles, but I don't. Psychologists say that we have 50 to 60,000 thoughts per day, and 70 to 80% of them are negative. That is why James said fighting the internal battles is exhausting. More than ever, this is a time to consume positive content, books, audiobooks, YouTube videos, and so forth, to help you during these rough times. As you already know, I like to share videos, in this case, the audio version of great messages from YouTube. This time, I picked a video from the channel Freddy Fry Motivation, titled Winning the Mental Battle. I hope you enjoyed the message. Stay safe and stay mentally strong. Check it out. So I'm just coming at you from the heart today. Week four for me, my business shut down. So I know you're dealing with a whole lot that you're going through in life. But I tell myself each and every time I start thinking about me and wanting to go into a wine mode and want to go into a pity party and the motivator needs this motivation, I know people like you are going through it a lot worse 
that I ever could be going through it. It is a war. And it is a war against this unseen enemy, as some like to call it, this coronavirus. But it's also a mental war between ourselves. Because you're fighting everything, all this information that's pouring into you, that's making you feel fear. And all the things that are really happening in your life that are making you feel fear. But the only way you win is to win internally. If you can overcome and win this mental battle, then no matter what else happens to you in your life, you'll always be able to emerge victorious. Heard a wise man say, winning the mental battle is finding a way to do within when you're doing without. Meaning when all hope seems lost, when all the walls seem like they're caving in on you and life is just trying to put you in that chokehold, you're able to give yourself a personal pep talk and remind yourself that this too shall pass everything will be all right because you've been in situations before might have been a lot different than this one but I want you to think back and remember everything was all right it never was as bad as you thought everything does happen for a reason but I know when I get down in the dumps that's when I go into my bag of tricks and I give myself a personal pep talk I'm like fry you built for this fry you wired for this fry you will get through this. Fry, dig deeper. Fry, give more. And that's exactly what you have to do. I need you to keep your positivity locked. Keep your positive mindset locked. And all them negative thoughts, those negative demons, I need you to keep them blocked. Today is the day for you to start winning your mental battle. Anxiety, depression, sadness, Fear, be gone. You are a gift of God. The universe has your back. But it only is going to act in your favor if you start mentally thinking, staying positive, not speaking negativity into existence. I know the news and everybody around you are going to be feeding you and filling you with. Sometimes you just got to turn it off and find yourself a strong, mental, happy place and go there. I love this quote. It says, some of the greatest battles will be fought within the silent chambers of your own soul. It's deep. And that's why I implore you to dig deep. Dig deeper than you ever have before in your life. Because this coronavirus is real. And it's got us all shook. Heard Trent Shelton say, it's okay not to be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay there for an extended period of time, wallow in misery, live in fear. You have everything inside of you to emerge victorious. So this is the moment, this is the time for you to start winning your everyday mental battles with yourself. Because when you can do that, you find yourself climbing over the hump and making each and every day of your life, no matter what, a Wednesday. Win your mental battles. This is a great day to win. Let's go. We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. 
Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.